Rockabye baby, daddy's awake. When he comes home, hard cider he'll swig. When he has swug, he'll fall in a snoo. And down will come Tyler and Tippy Canoe. The governments of the American Republic seem to me just as centralized and more energetic than those of Europe's absolute monarchies. I therefore do not think that they will perish from weakness. If America ever loses its liberty, the fault will surely lie with the omnipotence of the majority, which may drive minorities to despair and force them to resort to physical force. This may lead to anarchy, but to an anarchy that will come as a consequence of despotism. Jefferson said, The executive in our government is not the soul. It is scarcely the principal object of my jealousy. The tyranny of the legislatures is the most formidable dread at present and will be for long years. That is the executive will come. That of the executive will come in turn, but it will be at a remote period. End quote. So um, that's from a letter um, from Jefferson to Madison in 1789. Um, So welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, Right now we're working our way through Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. In the last two episodes, we looked at Tocqueville's overall thesis his view of popular sovereignty, and then in the follow-up episode, we, we looked at Tocqueville's views of the American Constitution and particularly the federal system. And now we're going to get into the second half of the first volume of Democracy America. We're going to cover it in this and the next episode. And this peer, this this part of the book, uh, looks at really the threats and to American democracy and American liberties and where he sees those coming from. And he also sees that what can be the most enduring um, aspects, what can help protect and preserve um, the American system. And that's what he, that kind of completes up volume one of Democracy in America. Um, volume two, which was written a little bit later and published, I think about five years after the first volume, looks at what for me is the more interesting aspects of, of the book, and that is the, the kind of the, the mental, um, intellectual, cultural aspects of American democracy. But we're, in this part, still deep into the, the kind of the political reading of, of Tocqueville's view of the, of the politics of America, his reading of American politics. Um, so uh, what are, where are we going to start here? Well, um, well, he starts with a brief chapter where he just, basically, it's, it's the title um, makes the point, but it's called, Why is it strictly accurate to say that in the United States it is the people who govern? And his proof for this, is, it's, it's very quick, it's a, a, th- a very short three-paragraph ch- um, chapter, and it's just because institutions are democratic, and they get their support from, from the people through voting. Um, so, uh, quote, hence it's the people who rule. And even though the form of government is representative, it is clear that there can be no durable obstacles capable of preventing the opinions, prejudices, interests, and even passions of the people from making their influence felt on the daily direction of society. So his his evidence here is kind of a general statement, but it's kind of an empirical statement that despite the Constitution being kind of a Republican document, at the end of the day, it's the will of the people that gets represented in, in its politics. Remember, Tocqueville thinks the politics of the state are much more important, than, or the local politics even, are much more important than those at the, at the nation. But he, uh, but where is this uh, battle for opinions? Uh, in, what are the institutions by which the opinions of the majority are expressed? And for that, that leads us straight into chapter two, which is about the party system in the United States. 
Now, he makes several very interesting observations throughout this, this section. One is uh, that there was basically an aristocratic party in early American political history, and that he, he kind of takes a Jeffersonian line with this, that it was the Federalist Party were essentially the aristocratic remnants, but they became very quickly a minority party, despite their early dominance in the system. And this leads him to think that basically the party system in America are going to be, you know, be parts of democracy that are not going to be aristocratic at the end of the day. That's, some, that's kind of a, a remnant that died out pretty early in, in, the, in America's political system. The question, though, that any one of this era looking at a party system has to ask is, are these good or not? And, and we can always, of course, of course, go back to the Federalist Papers and consider what, what uh, Madison said about this, what Hamilton said about parties, and of course the most famous Federalist, I forget which one it was, I, I should remember, but one of the Federalist Papers takes on the question of factions and parties, and the argument essentially is, yeah, we're going to have parties, there are going to be factions in, in a large democracy, but this is good because it creates stability, right? And I think that's been borne out, right? Right, a party can lose an election, but their opinions can still be expressed in government through the minority, and they can always win the next election, right? It's, it's not like uh, if like the aristocratic struggles in Europe, like the French wars of religion, that if the, the Guise family loses to the, the Bourbons, right, the, you know, they're all wiped out, right? They'll never have power again. That it's this back and forth of, the, of popular sovereignty kind of be fighting out between parties that, that creates some basic political stability um, there. Um, but at the same time, he, he sees parties as evil. That's the idea at the time, right? That's very popular. And of course, from a European perspective, parties were disruptive to the, the monarchies and absolute monarchies. In those days, we, like in that context, we call them like factions within, within government. He writes straight up, parties are an evil inherent in free governments, but their character and instincts are not always the same. There are times when a nation feels tormented by such evils that a total change in political constitution begins to seem feasible, and there are those times when the melee strikes even deeper and the social state itself is compromised. In such times, great revolutions occur and great parties arise. Right, and I, and I think there's um, this is kind of borne out in history. He, he's of course looking at 1800 as his major example of this, and then the rise of the Democratic Party. Right when he was writing this, right the, the 1820s. So you already had two examples of of new parties emerging in the midst of of a malaise or a stagnation in the political system, right? And that's the way the revolutions are achieved. And we can look later in history at you know the rise of the Republican Party, perhaps. Um, maybe the progressive era is a time where the parties remain the same since the 1860s, but their characteristics, their issues, their concerns have changed. And there's been sweeping transformations in governance, right? Of course, you have the New Deal coalition, which dominated American politics from 1932, 1933 until 1992. With a, I think there's a few Republican Congresses in there, but, but just a few. Right. And then you had an era of, of Republican Party rule of, of a particular ideology. Right. And now maybe that's changing. Who knows? We'll have to see. Right. But unlike the parties, perhaps in Europe, they never they're ever violent in, their, in, in America, in their democracy. Uh, in America, the struggle between the two camps never took the violent form, which is often distinguished in other countries. Both parties were in agreement about the essential points. Neither had destroyed the other ancient order or overturned an entire society in order to prevail. Hence, the lives and livelihood of thousands of individuals did not depend on the prime of one set of particular principles rather than another. But those principles did affect immaterial interests of the utmost importance, such as love of equality and independence. This was enough to arouse violent passions. Um, so, 
Um, he does have one concern here with parties, though, and that is since you have this kind of broad agreement on the basic principles of democracy, you know, with the death of kind of the aristocratic party, there's not, if you want to take the federal says the aristocratic party, we'll just take Tocqueville's word for it here. Uh, with that gone, both parties basically are democratic. Right? And you can look at the antebellum political campaigns. They both have the accoutrements of democracy. And they, they both kind of market themselves to the masses. With that, there's, there's basically ideological agreement on, on this. Um, so where is the problem? Well, the problem is in that when parties become affected by material interest, right? Because that's where policy actually seems to matter, right? A party's not going to come in and say, we're going to overdo democracy and implement you know, authoritarian socialism or something. That's not going to happen. But what can happen is a party that's heavily influenced by material interests can take power. Um, so he says... Um, there are any number of parties that pose a threat to the future of the union, but none seem to be attacking the present form of government or the general course of society. The parties that threaten the union are based not on principle, but on material interests. In the various provinces of such a vast empire, those interests constitute not so much parties as rival nations. In the recent past, for example, the North supported a system of restrictions on commerce, and the South took up arms in favor of freedom of trade, solely because the North is a manufacturing region and the South an agricultural one, and the restrictions profit one at the expense of the other. And that's more ominous. If you start having sectionalism based on material interest, that's going to be a greater threat. And, and I think uh, certainly we can see the Civil War. His predictions of, of, of sectional conflicts are, are in this book, and the Civil War proved that that was that was a danger um, now then he goes on to like well how do the parties direct themselves to democracies how, how do they speak to democracy how do they engage within democracy because that's the foundation general equality of conditions and democracy that's at the root of everything and then he's just looking at the the characteristics of it the evidence of it what does it look like in practice so the party must graft itself to democracy so how does it do it well he's got two um Ways and much of this part of the of the book covers this, and that is uh, associations, political associations, groups, and the press. So uh, one thing he's really interested in in democracy is how Americans try to group together into gangs and clans and and, and communities. Um, some of these are political, some not, but he's particularly here interested in the political associations, and then how they're always reading the newspaper. Right? Um, you know, I kind of was was criticizing my parents a little bit because they, they watch all this news about Trump all the time. They're always, um, you know, they don't watch the YouTube news. That'd be even worse, I would think, if they got into that. But they watch the TV news and the late night shows and the comedy shows all, you know, talking about Trump all the time. And I'm like, this isn't that good for you, you know, to do that. But there is kind of an American tradition to be obsessed with politics, right? And, the, and often politics that seem petty from the point of view of maybe the big politics of, of absolute monarchy. Right, which of course isn't fought out in the press in in Europe. I mean, things that you know in the hindsight seem kind of maybe silly, like a little scandal, right, becomes news for weeks and weeks, like the Clinton scandal, right, that dominated the news and the newspapers for for months and months and months, you know, a couple years. Um, as I'm recording this, the Mueller report just came out, and you know, no new indictments. Uh, we, of course, we haven't seen it at the time I'm recording it. It hasn't been released to the public yet, but it seems it's not that big of a deal. But you think for, for over almost two years, you know, news has been obsessed with this and it seems to be a petty thing. But this is how parties kind of gravitate themselves to democracies through these institutions of, of the public sphere. And so if you're interested in public sphere kind of theory, um, certainly this is 
uh, interesting section. But I think Tocqueville's concern here with both of the press and with political associations is, you know, kind of the pettiness of of it all and how these, you know, the they're not arguing the big principles because there's agreement upon that. So it just becomes um, biting around the edges of issues. But it's obsessed, it's taking up a huge amount of like the public's time and concerns and efforts. Now, the good news about this is the press doesn't have to be suppressed in the United States, and it, and it won't be suppressed in his view. Um, he says, uh, quote, what needs to be said is that the press has much less power in the United States than in France. And yet it is rare in the United States. Nothing is rare in the United States in the prosecution of the press. The reason for this is simple. The Americans, having attempted, accepted the dogma of popular sovereignty, have been sincere in their application of it. It never occurred to them to mold an eternal constitution out of elements that change from day to day. Hence, it's no crime to attack an existing law, so long as no one has any intention of evading that law by violent means. The Americans believe, moreover, that the courts are powerless to moderate the press, and that because human language is too subtle for judicial analysis, these kinds of offenses have a way of vanishing when the arm of the law reaches out to grasp them. In order to influence the press effectively, their only view one would have find a tribunal that was not only devoted to the existing order, but also capable of placing itself above the surrounding swirl of public opinion." End quote. And yeah, I, I don't know of any examples, significant ones of, this, of the press being suppressed. I mean, maybe wartime, right? The World War I era, you had suppression of, of that, but certainly not the time Tocqueville was, was writing. There were in the colonial period, uh, that was a big, what was that famous one? I forgot the name of it, but uh, that was in the colonial period, the monarchical period, um, but not in this time. So there's, it, it gets, the way I kind of read this is because they're not really, they're at the same time everywhere and not powerful. Like the press itself isn't as powerful um, because they're not positing positions that are a fundamental threat to the system or the law or democracy, right? Um, I think one thing that Tocqueville is very interested in here is how Americans may complain about the law all the time and, and protest it and, and, and put up their, you know, fight tooth and nail to see a law not passed. But once it's passed, you know, everyone kind of goes along with it and accepts it. There, there isn't this uh, opposition to it very much. You know, even civil disobedience, as important as a tactic, wasn't a huge part of, of, of American resistance. I think how many people actually like resist taxes, for instance, you know, people use the law, manipulate the law to evade taxes, certainly. But how many people, you know, on principle say, I'm not going to pay my taxes. I mean, even the corporations that pay no taxes don't really oppose taxes or oppose the law, right? They just use the law to get around it. So it's kind of like, I get the sense it's like low stakes uh, for the press. And that's one reason it doesn't have to be suppressed at all. Another thing that interests him about the press is that... The press is everywhere, like every town has a newspaper, even small towns have newspapers. Um, you know, you could have like a settler town, like Dead, um, Deadwood, right? I, I, a, there's a newspaper in that TV show, right? But it's like a couple hundred people in a town and they have a newspaper, right? So you always have newspapers, but this makes a journalist kind of a pretty unimportant figure compared to maybe the philosophers who engage in the press in, in France and the Enlightenment or something. These people are kind of pretty low ranking figures because, you know, there's not this, there's a huge market, but it's divided up amongst many, many um, operators. And there's also kind of a vulgarity to American journalism compared to the press in, in a place like France, where you have more national newspapers and, and presses, and it's, it's kind of a, it, 
a little loftier is the this word he uses here. But in America, it's just more vulgar and, and, and everywhere. But that kind of dilutes its significance overall. So but collectively, though, that's where the power of the press is, is 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 collectively. Um, and he writes the in the United States, each individual newspaper has little power, but the power of the periodical press in general is second only to that of the people. And one final thing about the press that he mentions here is the inability of the press to to really change opinions. I guess that's the way it is. And maybe that's due to it's kind of it's not lofty. It's but it's also market driven. I think that's what it's more about because there's so many newspapers. Some towns will have two or three, two newspapers, maybe one for each party. So people buy the newspaper that agrees with their point of view and they just have their point of view reinforced. And I think this is something Tocqueville doesn't really like. He I think he sort of wants the big debate and ideas and he sees in a democracy you know, just a lot of what we don't call kind of those those media bubbles that people find themselves in, right? That's not new. We think about it at Facebook now these days, but, you know, that's kind of an idea. To say that didn't exist in the past is to idealize the past, you know. In the early 19th century, you know, a large town would have two newspapers, a, a Whig one and a Democratic one. And if you were a Democrat, you'd read the Democratic newspaper. If you were a Whig, you'd read the Whig one. And you were essentially in a media bubble, Right. But this is an outcropping of democracy and it's a way that the parties kind of uh, build off democracy. Again, it's not that the parties are shaping public opinion. They just they're just parroting public opinion for political um, power. And here's where he gets kind of quite cynical about freedom of the press in the United States. He writes, when freedom of the press finds men in the first of these two states, that is, believe in a thing he accepts without looking deeply into it, um, in the first of these two states, it does not immediately alter their habits of believing firmly, but uncritically. It merely changes the object of their uncritical beliefs from one day to the next. From one end of the intellectual horizon to the other, men ought, therefore continues to see only one point at a time. But that point changes constantly. This is when sudden revolutions occur. Woe unto those generations that abruptly introduce freedom of the press for the first time. Soon, however, nearly a whole range of new ideas is explored. With experience comes doubt and universal mistrust. We can be sure that the majority of men will remain in one of these two states. They will either believe without knowing why or not know precisely what they ought to believe. As for the other type of conviction, the reflective self-assured conviction that grows out of knowledge and emerge from the agitation of doubt itself, it will never be granted to more than a small number of men to achieve it as a reward of their efforts. End quote. So he, does, he simply does not see the great intellectual coming out of the press, at least. People read the press to have confirmation of their own values. That that's pretty much the end of the, of the story. But it's very key to it's a very key characteristic of, of democracy. Um, so I, I don't know if it's against he's arguing here against the press, but he does seem that that newspapers are are rather banal, and and that's kind of his overall critique of democracy is you get this intellectual banality across the board. Everyone's educated enough to read the newspaper, but no one really thinks beyond the headlines. Now it's it's like YouTube, I guess, is where more and more people get the news. Um, that's chapter three. Chapter four is on political associations, and that kind of um, um, an extension of this of how parties sort of operate. Um, but there's kind of an interesting conflict, I think, in the in American individualism that Tocqueville's really onto here, and that is on the one hand, people think. People in democracy think it's kind of their duty to make or break it, break on their own. That you know, if they succeed in life, it's because of their efforts. If they fail, it's because of their failures. Uh, they have to rely on yourself, right? Um, 
quote, social authority makes them mistrustful and anxious. They rely upon its power only when they cannot do without it. The first becomes apparent in schools when children play by their own rules and punish in fractions they define themselves. One encounters the same spirit in all aspects of social life. Um, so what's the response to this? The response to this kind of um, going it alone. And then, of course, the deep, the great pressure this gives, right? If you could only blame yourself for your failure, you can't, like, if you're a peasant in France and you die poor, you're not sitting there saying, oh, if only I had, you know, implemented crop rotation, I could have been an, a, a, the king, right? That That's preposterous in a class, in a, essentially a caste system, like, like a feudal society. Um, in America, though, that could be a real thing, right? If you were a farmer and you die poor and you're leaving a rundown farm to your kids, you could, you know, you have, you feel bad about that. You feel, oh, I've really failed my children. If only I had implemented that crop rotation, then we could have been successful and I could have left prosperity. Um, months and months ago, we looked at Willa Cather, right? And there was a character who kind of was in that place, right? And most of the novel, it's, it's Old Pioneers is the name of the novel. You can go back and listen to my um, uh, thoughts about that. But in that novel, a woman takes over the, the farm and does exactly that. She makes it a prosperous um, farm, buys up the neighbors and everything. You know, it's this, this, this individual means oh, you only have yourself to blame for your failure. So what's our response to that? That anxiety is to form associations and for groups. And, and so Americans are always forming clubs and groups and, and these kinds of things. And he doesn't see that in these more aristocratic societies. And political parties are a function of that grouping of, of people. And I think it's a bit of a, uh, it certainly is a kind of bit of a contradiction, right? America had some of the most radical and aggressive labor unions uh, in, in the industrial world at the end of the 19th century. The, the IWW in the early 20th century had the CIO, uh, heavily influenced by socialists and communists and, and, and the Communist Party. You know, but that's not, it's, because, it's almost like an adjunct of this individualism rather than a contradiction to it. And, I, and then he just talks about the, the freedom to form associations and how Americans take advantage of that freedom of association. That's all very interesting. Um, but I think his, he's always comparing this to Europe throughout this book, especially this first half of the book. He's always comparing it to Europe. And in Europe, if an association forms, they always speak for the majority. right? Um, but in the United States, you have associations that form to defend minorities or, or what we call, now call special interests. Right, which isn't a bad thing, right? You know, the spe word "special interest" in politics these days has a bad name, but you know, a labor union is a special interest, right? So is a, you know, a, just a, a, a group of a group of farmers organizing to um, protect against um, oppressive loans. You know, like something like the populist movement. That's a special interest. The populists are trying to represent the vast majority of Americans, right? It was very regional, just the farmers. You know, they tried to get help from others, but um, it didn't really work out. But that's not a bad thing about it. That's that's kind of an interesting characteristic of this association. Um, and then he's also fascinated how all these associations form their own governments. They have constitutions and presidents and treasurers, and they kind of parrot the, the institutions of, of government. Quote, American associations also establish their own governments, but those governments are, if I may put it this way, civilian governments. Individual independence has its place in them as in society at large. Everyone marches simultaneously towards the same goal, but there's no requirement that everyone follow the same path. No one sacrifices his will or his reason. Instead, everyone lends his will and his reason to the common enterprise in order to ensure its success. 
Okay, so now we get to chapter 5, and this is the big one. In fact, he, he starts the chapter saying, I am well aware that I tread now on live coals. Every word of this chapter will invariably offend one or another of the parties that divide my country, France. I shall nevertheless concede nothing of what I think. So the chapter is called On the Government of Democracy in America. And really what the theme of this chapter is, is how is it that democracy actually functions in American government? He, this is something he hasn't really talked about yet. We're already over 200 pages into this, this book. Like he talked about the government, the federalism. He talked about uh, like local organization of government, equality of conditions. But why is it that democracy reigns in America? And, and that's not really been addressed systematically. And that's what he seeks, seeks to do in Chapter 5 of Part 2 of Democracy in America. And the foundation of this is, is um, universal suffrage. And of course, universal manhood suffrage for white people. Um, slaves didn't vote. Women didn't vote. So it's, it's a limited suffrage from modern standards. But at the time, it, it's how universal suffrage was being defined, right? You know, as opposed to... Um, property qualifications as you had in most other other countries at the time and what he sees here of course this is a foundation for a kind of equality of political conditions right that everyone can vote but this can never really achieve broader social equality right you're still going to have deep class divisions he even says uh, here in the united states people don't feel hatred towards the upper classes of society but they feel little benevolence towards them and are careful to keep them out of power they do not take fear great talents but have little taste for them in general one finds that anything that rises above without the support of the people has a hard time winning their favor but at the same time d democratic institutions awaken and flatter the passions of equality without ever fully being able to satisfy it to the full no sooner does full equality seem within people's reach than it flies from their grasp and its flight as pascal said is internal the people passionately seek a good that is all the more precious because it is close enough to be familiar yet far enough away that it cannot be savored so that's the foundation universal suffrage right what are some of the other aspects though and i have to admit this is a pretty long section and to go through it point by point would would probably take more time than I want to spend on this, but um, let me mention some of them. Well, one is one thing that's that comes out of this is that officials and laws are contingent on the on the people, right? No one's secure in their position. Like again, this is of course contrasted sharply with an aristocrat. An aristocrat may have a pretender or a civil war or be overthrown, but that's really really rare, right? So they're secure in their position. In a democracy, no official is secure; they can always be overthrown overturned and the same thing was with any law so there's a lot of what he calls administrative and legal instability in the united states he, he actually has got a section here called administrative instability in the united states um, and he goes so far as to say that there's almost no historical memory in a democracy or at least an american democracy which i think there might be some truth to that is there's kind of a lack of historical knowledge or understanding or even more insidious a tendency to impose our own political values and concerns on the past right parties do that all the time they they harken back to the past in very superficial ways but don't really understand it and at the same time you know big political debates of of earlier something just even a couple of years ago seemed foreign or or out of, were out of touch of it right and this is a product of the administrative instability right most people can't name presidents even a few presidents back very accurately or certainly not vice presidents and or or, or congress people people who really matter in making laws but they're it, it all kind of drifts into the ether uh, uh, in this kind of presentism of, of democracy. 
And that's a consequence of this instability. Nothing really endures, right? Obama passes the Affordable Care Act, you know, Trump undoes it, un, you know, un, un, undoes it. And then, you know, someone else, some other one will come to power and create a new health care law. And, you know, this stuff, this stuff doesn't seem to matter because of this instability in it. Now, I live in China, and this is one of the clear arguments that Chinese people will give about why democracy it fails is this in very much this instability, right? It's like there's no um, consistency. In fact, I was just watching a, an, an interview between an Al Jazeera journalist and, uh, and uh, Charles Liu, who's a senior fellow at Peking University, an entrepreneur and an advisor to Xi Jinping's government. And he was being questioned about Xi Jinping's uh, kind of uh, the removal of term limits on, on presidents uh, under Xi Jinping, basically opening the door for him to be president for life. And his response was, well, it doesn't mean he's going to be president for life, right? It's just previously when we had term limits, the second term was always a lame duck term and nothing got done, right? So by having this kind of presumed consistency in government, you're going to always have, there's no lame duck period. So someone's always getting done. Contrast this, of course, to the United States where you can govern for like six months or a year before it's like the midterm. You have to prepare for the midterms. And then after that, you got to prepare for the next presidential election, right? It's worse now than it was maybe in Tocqueville's days, but probably not much worse in that those kind of windows of political power are kind of limited. This is another reason why like more actually matters at the state and, and local level or maybe this, these kind of uh, instabilities may be easier because there's more ground for maybe for consensus at the local local and state politics than in national politics. Now, salaries are a big part of this. Um, you know, it's, it's important, right? Because if you're a salaried official, you're, of course, then loyal to the democracy because you depend on the people for your paycheck, for your vote. This is in contrast to an aristocratic system where, or even like the early... American Republic, where this idea was people who are of independently wealthy are the best to speak for the the, the public's good, right? Because they're not beholden to to um, some salary, right? Uh, they won't be weighed, swayed by democracy so easily because you know they can see beyond their immediate interests, right? So th that's interesting. Um, I don't know if it's true. Um, I th I'm sure the rich can always want more. But the idea of a salaried, or salaried official means, you know, their whole income comes from the job they do. And that could be taken away at a moment's notice. Right. So it's presented as kind of one reason why democracy exists and, and, and uh, flourishes in America is because of the salaried officials. It just, it's, just, it's a check on institutionalized power. But the other side, of course, is that government in, in a democracy is more expensive and not at all cheap, right? That it's going to tend towards more public expenditure. And this is, again, you know, you want people to vote for you, so you, you build a bridge or you hire people that you, you create jobs or whatever that, you know, and that requires spending. He concludes, I, without recourse to incomplete figures or shaky comparisons, I conclude that democratic government in America is not, as sometimes claimed, cheap, is sometimes claimed cheap government. I do not hesitate to predict, moreover, that if great difficulty should ever befall the people of the United States, taxes there will rise to a level just as high as one finds in most of Europe's aristocracies and monarchies. But here the spending is going to increase. It's going to be going to spend on what people want, right? Or what people demand or what democracy is demanding, not to, to uplift the aristocratic class. 
Now, one of what I think is one of the, the the more interesting sections in this is in this chapter is called on American democracy's power over itself. So, the question is, can democracy stifle the passions of the of the people? Um, can it can it have this kind of disciplinary effect to kind of create virtuous citizens? I think its conclusion is essentially no, um, because people can you know they pass laws that are in their interests and their desires. And if laws aren't, they will tend to disobey them or change them, or they'll just be nullified. Um, and well, I'll just read a, a, question, a section. This is 257 of Library of America edition of this book. The people surrounded by flatterers find it most difficult to overcome their own inclinations. Um, well, I'm gonna go on, but think about that. The people surrounded by flatterers. Who are the flatterers? Well, themselves. We flatter ourselves. Americans flatter themselves. That's that's the logic here, um, and we we we're, you know, it's not clear who the flatterer is. I just assume it's it's democracy itself is the flatterer, right? Anyways, moving on. Uh, the people surrounded by flatterers find it most difficult to overcome their own inclinations. Whenever anyone tries to persuade them to deprive themselves of something or to inconvenience themselves in some way, even for a purpose to which their reason assents, they almost always begin by refusing. Americans have been justly praised for their obedience to the law. One should add that in America, the laws are made by the people and for the people. In the United States, therefore, the law favors the very people who everywhere else would have the greatest interest in violating them. Hence, we may assume that an irksome law, whose utility was not evident to the majority, would either not be carried out or not obeyed. In the United States, there are no laws regarding fraudulent bankruptcies. Is it perhaps because there are no bankruptcies? No, on the contrary, it's because there are too many. In the mind of the majority, the fear of being prosecuted by, as a bankrupt outweighs the fear of being ruined by bankruptcy of others. Thus, the public conscience has developed a sort of guilty tolerance for an offense that everyone individually condemns, end quote. And of course, we can just throw in um, uh, prohibition as a great example of that, right? Even though that did become law, it was very quickly not followed by too many people and i think we see that with maybe marijuana prohibition uh, soon first it's it's not respected and eventually it will um, get overturned its conclusion here is not all, all bad though he, he does think democracy will tend to be driven by passions and make mistakes but those mistakes can also be very easily corrected while if a, if a monarch makes a mistake or an aristocratic state makes a makes a mistake that mistake tends, tends to stick and it can't really be disrupted by, by by change because it's kind of the 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 system itself then becomes to blame in, in america the system is never to blame because it's i mean democracy can always just change its mind about about things and that doesn't attack the system itself right but in a place like china you know it's to break a law is like an offense against the the system itself, right? Even saying the wrong words uh, can be an offense to the system itself. Uh, that would never be the case in, in in a democracy, one presumes. Well, what does this mean for foreign policy? And this might be more ominous, where foreign policy may be an area you want total objectivity and neutrality and analysis. It says, ah, now you're not gonna get that in democracy. Uh, of course, in democracy, you're gonna get a foreign policy that's all based on sentiment and values and and that kind of stuff, not reason. So that, that's, that's what you're going to get. And he even points out like the, the, the way the United States dealt with the Napoleonic Wars and the, the Embargo Act and all of these. These were driven by passions and immediate returns. Like, just think back. We talked about Jefferson's career. You know, first you have, is it the, 
what was the series of laws? Well, f first there was like the, the neutrality kind of act was passed. I forget the name of it. Then there was the embargo act. And when that failed, they quickly switched to the non-importation act, I think it was. Or it's the non-interference act. I forget the order of them. But, you know, they in just a few years, Jefferson tried three different major foreign policies and driven by that kind of the passions of, of, of the people. War of 1812, kind of a war of, of passion in many ways. I don't, you know, don't have the time to really get into that, that discussion, but the, the people who were most affected by um, the, the actual British policies, you know, impressment of things, weren't the states that voted for the war. It was the ones who you know, felt offended by Britain, the you know, kind of Southern offense was was a bigger driver of the War of 1812. Well, the next chapter of the book is called uh, What are the Real Advantages to American Society of Democratic Government? Uh, chapter 6. And he immediately says, well, there's all these disadvantages, which we'll get to, I'm sure, and we'll talk about. But for now, we're going to talk about advantage. Those disadvantages are basically the um, kind of the incompleteness, the, the arbitrariness of, of the law. Right. Now that can be an advantage, but it also can be a disadvantage, right? And some of these kind of decisions of democratic government will violate rights or even allow dangerous things to to emerge, right? Because again, it's driven mostly by by the passions of the majority, and that's really the conclusion of chapter six: is the emergence of this of what he calls the you know, omnipotence of the majority, and that's going to be the major topic in in chapter seven. One of the biggest, he thinks, is this overall contribution of people to democratic institutions and to, to civil society overall, that, that people in democracies don't sit out and they feel that their, their individual success or failure is a component of the overall success or failure of, of the democratic society. So you're not going to get as many people who just kind of, you don't get as much ennui and, and sitting out, right? You, it's 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 not again like in an aristocratic culture where you don't feel you have any power to change anything so you just kind of go along with how things are he sees a more participatory aspect to it and even if it can be kind of petty like the local corrupt official you know who the uh, you know you you rally against right but it it provide it's something participatory for them another kind of added to this would be that the people who do then participate in in government can be easily removed so they tend to be a, a little bit more um, they pass policies that are benevolent, bene beneficial to the people, that are popular, and that officials who are inept or corrupt, you know, tend to get um, turned out of the system. Um, now, there's a broader kind of advantage, though, that he sees, and that's, and this is really important for kind of the endurance of democracy in America, in his view, and that is the overall love of country that comes out of this, that people feel that connection to the system um, through this universal suffrage and that leads to a, a broader love of country than may exist in aristocratic countries quote there exists a love of country that stems primarily from the immediate disinterested and undefinable sentiment that ties a man's heart to a place where he was born this instinct instinctive love is intimately connected to a liking of ancient customs respect for elders and memories of the past those who feel it cherish the country the man might love his ancestral home. They love the tranquility they might enjoy and value the peaceful habits they acquired there. Attached to this memories that the place invokes, they find it pleasant to live there even in obedience. It's not uncommon for such a love of country to be further exalted by religious zeal, in which case it can work miracles. 
It is itself a kind of religion. It does not reason. It believes, it feels, it acts. Now, this overall definition of love of country is not just unique to a democracy. This exists everywhere, right? And that the French can have that too, but it's different in a democracy. And it has to be different, especially in America, because America doesn't have that historical tie uh, to the land. It, they're recent comers to the land. They don't have, they actually, because of democracy, for other reasons, they don't have that kind of historical memory as, as strongly as maybe you do in, in aristocratic cultures. So what's special about um, this kind of love of country in, in the United States is its connection to the public spirit. He writes, because the American takes part in everything that is done in his country, he believes that he has an interest in defending everything about it that he criticized, that is criticized. For it is not only his country that's attacked, but himself. Thus he finds his national pride resorting to every artifice and stooping to every puerile expression of individual vanity. Nothing inhibits ordinary social intercourse more than the irritable patriotism of the American. A foreigner may be prepared to praise a great deal of the United States, but something he would like to criticize, and this the American absolutely refuses to allow. End quote. Now I just want to say it's not only Americans that do this. Living in China now, it's pretty difficult to say anything critical, even if you're overall, you know, praising China. If you say something critical, you say, well, what about this policy or something? Then it's, you know, you suddenly have to defend the, the honor or you have to defend, you'll find someone defending the honor of, of, of China. Um, so that exists in other places. Um, but this is, this is kind of interesting now, right? This, um, because I've been in this posi same position though, where, you know, I talk to a European and they're criticizing Trump or Bush or Obama's foreign policy, and you're like, hey, that's my president. Even if you don't uh, agree with him that much, you, you know, it's... Anyways, it's kind of emotional side to, to patriotism in America. It's not just that you love the land. It's like that kind of the whole package gets, gets tied up in that. But it comes out of the participatory nature of, 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 of democracy and that everyone is kind of a part of it. And that he thinks is a really an advantage in just kind of the endurance of, of the system. All right, a few more advantages he identifies. One is, is rights and this, this, well, this, just the general idea that people have, people have rights and that they're willing to defend those and, and just the centrality of political rights, right? It's not even that people always use those rights. It's, it's that overall belief in that, but it makes those rights actually a little bit more meaningful than in a country that may have them, but not actually implement them, right? It's just that kind of sensitivity about rights. Uh, is, is an advantage in actually making those things true. And th this then ties inversely to respect for law, right? Um, now, I don't know, it's, law is interesting the way he deals with it because he does see law as fickle in a, in a democracy. And he sees there are times when a law will exist that people won't honor, right? So he's not talking here about individual laws when he talks about the respect for law. He's, he's saying that law itself is, is respected because it's, it's the will of the entire people. But it's also a part of equality. He says, in the United States, each individual has, in a sense, a personal interest in seeing to it that everyone obeys the law. For a person who is not in the majority today may find himself in it tomorrow. And the respect that he professes for the will of the majority, now he may later have occasion to demand for himself. No matter how irksome a law may be, the resident of the United States therefore submits to it without protest, not simply because of it is the work of the majority, but also because he had a hand in making it himself. He looks upon it as a contract for which he is a party. Um, and then the final real advantage he identifies here is 
is the quote, the pervasiveness of political activity in the United States and the influence it exerts on society. And this is kind of a, an overall meta analysis of a summary of everything that came before. It's just this, it's the broad participatory nature of democracy um, based on universal suffrage for at least for white men is the foundation of this participatory um, nature of, of politics. Um, so everyone's sort of in on it. All right, a um, lot, lot more to say. I'm just kind of giving you the, the brief summary and my overall impression of, of this work. Uh, finally, chapter seven, finally for today anyways, chapter seven, on the omnipotence of the majority and its effects. Well, I mean, this is, this is what it all comes down to. Um, this, is, this is the danger. So we're starting to, to drift into the realm of dangers and to the, the question of, is there the possibility of a tyranny of the majority in the United States? Certainly thinks this is a major danger. And here what it comes down to is just nothing can really stop the, the majority in a, in a democracy. Right. And I would su suggest that rights are even a part of this. And that's his concern. So he comes right out to it. He does think the tyranny of the majority exists in in a democracy. Um, he writes. Um, let me see. No. OK. He makes an interesting point here. Like you do have people who maybe refuse to obey unjust laws in, in a society like the United States. But basically what happens then is is they'll always, they'll always be defended not because my personal rights are being violated or I just don't like this law for whatever reason they'll always um, plead to a to a higher democracy to like the human race right so even if if uh, most Americans uh, I mean think about the civil rights movement right you did have those southern states obviously they weren't democratic at the time um, many people weren't allowed to vote but they, they passed these these laws that created uh, segregation. And then, of course, the civil rights movement pled to the national government, the 14th Amendment, to, to human rights, to, to the concept of civil rights, to the UN Declaration of Human Rights, and these other higher, higher justices, right? Quote, when I refuse to obey an unjust law, I do not deny the majority's right to command. I'm simply appealing to the sovereignty of the people, from the sovereignty of the people, to the sovereignty of the human race. You never give up the, the majority. And if you can always plead to the majority, you're never really wrong, right? Now, the end result of this for Tocqueville is essentially the tyranny of the majority. He says, my chief complaint against democratic government is that it's been organized in the United States. It's not that it's weak, as many in Europe maintain, but rather that its strength is irresistible. What I find most repugnant in America is not the extreme liberty that prevails, but the virtual absence of any guarantee against tyranny. Now, this is worse when it's tied to kind of the arbitrariness of law, the, the fickleness of law, the fact that, you know, one election can lead to an overturning of, of the previous one, right? So this opens up a lot of risk to a very quick transition to, to a tyranny. And that is the most significant danger that Tocqueville sees in the American political system and in democracies overall. Um, but I'm going to say more about that in the next episode, where I'll finish up book one of Democracy in America. It's going to be a longer episode, and I don't quite know I'm going to handle it. It's, it's actually going to be about a 170 pages or so of material. Um, but rather than have a ninth episode on this, I, I just want to finish it up. It does fit all together, so that's my justification for, for doing a, long, a longer chunk of text. It's going to be um, chapters 8... 
eight to ten. So it's only three chapters, but one of them is is over 100 pages. Um, so what's going to be in the next section? Well, basically, it's, it's going to be more on the threats to democracy, um, crises in the republic, um, why why there are some prophylactics against this tyranny of the majority. But then we're going to get to the big chapter, chapter 10, which is about um, the impact of slavery and the impact of Native Americans on the American system of democracy. And so that's going to be really where we want to focus on is just what is the consequence of this democracy being only for white men um, and not for not Indians being outside of it and certainly enslaved men being outside of that. He doesn't talk about women um, too much, at least in this part. I think women have a larger role in the second volume, but not as a civic entity. So, he, you know, obviously he's not seeing women as part of this democracy. So anyways, um, I hope that that helped explain some of the key points in this part of of Tocqueville's Alexis Tocqueville's Democracy in America. We'll finish up uh, volume one of Democracy in America in the next episode. Um, but, and then we'll get into my favorite part of uh, volume two. So uh, that's all for now. If you have your own comments about about American democracy and its impact on American society, its benefits, um, its, its power, maybe that's the that's the key theme here, like the power of democracy. And it's it's is that is that inherently good or dangerous uh, to to society? So uh, leave your comments below or send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com. I'll be back next time with with um, part four of my coverage, my review, my thoughts on Alexis Tocqueville's Democracy Walk in America. I'll see baby you when you awake, you will discover old tip is a fake. Far from the battle, cry and drum he sits in his cabin drinking bad rum